Hey guys, I'm excited. Have a game with me, Serena Higgins. I had her back on in November on Occult and Magic. We had a really great conversation. Uh, so great that um, thought we'd have a part two. Um, and so this is the first time I'm doing a part two. So it'll be a bit of an experiment, but uh, yeah, we'll just run with it and have fun. Um, how are you doing today, Serena? Very well, Kendall. Glad to be on and continue our wide-ranging conversation with you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming back. Sure. Yeah, so looking through my notes, um, I kind of felt like I felt a little bit of a, a theme. I'm sure we'll go various ways, but it seems like a lot of um, the, the things we're covering kind of have to do with, um, I'll say, like surrender versus or and striving. Or you could say faith versus works. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it seems like that's kind of like woven in there. Um, so uh, I guess maybe th we'll see about the title later, but uh, that's kind of uh, just a little bit of overview. Um, well, that's insightful. And, yeah, I didn't really notice that that was a theme, but I think you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. And you know, as uh, English majors, <laughs> um, you, you find the theme in there, or the themes. So <laughs> thought that was a little helpful. Um, and so I'll just kind of bring up, uh, try to uh, reintroduce some things we talked about um, as we go. So people get a sense. Um, of course, if you go listen to the first um, episode, then you'll have more context we're talking about. But um, yeah, so I think the first thing I wanted to bring up was... Um, you talked about how Lewis and Tolkien um, believed in uh, neutral or the possibility of neutral spiritual beings. And I was kind of wondering if you had any idea like where that came from or why they believe that. And would that, you know, a big topic today is aliens. And <laughs> if, if they included that, I know that Lewis, you know, had his sci-fi trilogy and um, aliens were, I guess, a part of that <laughs> in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will I will tell you the very little bit I know about this or the little bit that I can gather. I'm not the most well-read person on this subject. I can definitely recommend other people. There was a really interesting episode recently of the Whole Church podcast about aliens, extraterrestrials, the Inklings, and the Bible. So you can check that out. There's a brilliant thinker named Richard Rowland, and he is often on Jonathan Pajot's Symbolic World podcast, and they, they talk a fair amount about this. Um, so they would know more than I do, but since I'm the one here, I'll share the little bit that I know. <laughs> um, I believe that Tolkien and Lewis would have gotten their idea about these neutral spiritual beings, both from literature and their reading of the Bible, and that the two sets of reading would have influenced each other mutually in both directions. So throughout medieval literature, there is this sense that the supernatural world is as diversely populated as the natural world. It doesn't surprise us that we have lots and lots and lots of species of animals or that we have lots of humans of different ethnic right. backgrounds and cultures and languages. But for some reason, it surprises us moderns that, wait, there's more than just 100% good angels and 100% bad demons, and they're not the only pop populace inhabitants. They're not the only demographic of the spiritual world. But to people who spent their personal and professional lives reading medieval literature, as Lewis and Tolkien did, I don't think that would be surprising at all. 
they would be like, well, why wouldn't there be all these different species, as it were, and races of supernatural beings? And indeed, the analogy of humans to animals, I think, is an apt one, because they thought that there probably were supernatural beings who were higher in rationality and communicative ability and intellectual ability, and then ones that were essentially the equivalent of non-rational animals in the supernatural Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. So there would be, so they would be sort of neutral towards us in the sense that maybe an earthworm is neutral towards us. Like it doesn't have us as part of its goals. It's not out to hurt us or help us. We don't really figure into its calculations except as it doesn't want to get stepped on or put on a fish hook. Mm -hmm. Um, So there might similarly be spiritual beings of the intellectual equivalent of an earthworm that are just doing their own thing. (laughs) Um, As far as the biblical precedents for this, that's where I really am woefully ignorant, but there are enough, there are just enough Bible verses, mostly throughout the old Testament and especially like the prophetic books and maybe a bit in revelation that seem to assume a vastly populated supernatural world with a variety of different ranks, as it were, or species of supernatural beings. And that suggests that they may be just sort of going along the the non-material highways of earth, doing their own thing in God's big plan um, without directly intending to interact with human beings. Hmm. Um, What are some of those? I mean, I I can think of like, uh, Nephilim or the great cloud of witnesses, of course, angels. And um, is the watcher, is that, is that part of it? <laughs> That's an occult uh, teaching. <laughs> so as far as angelicals, what we, what we tend to call angels, there's a pretty well-established belief of the nine orders of angelicals. So let's see if I can remember the nine of them. Um, seraphim, cherubim, Mm-hmm. archangels, angels, thrones, dominions, powers, principalities. Oh, right. mm-hmm. I'm missing one. <laughs> I'm missing one of the nine orders of angelicals. That's pretty but, good. So that's, <laughs> in, <laughs> um, that's in the writings of Dionysius, the pseudo Areopagite. Uh, Charles Williams plays on that in his book, The Place of the Lion, the nine orders of angelicals. And those are sort of seen as seraphim being the most powerful, the, the highest order, and then they sort of come down um, in their in their hierarchical order. Uh, as far as, the, oh, and those would all be benevolent towards humanity, right. the, the unfallen ones. And then of those nine, a certain percentage, traditionally about a third, would have fallen with Lucifer, who was a very high-ranking angelical being. So you would have the, the Instead of the hierarchy of angelicals, you'd have what Lewis liked to call the lowerarchy <laughs> of demonicals, of demonic beings. And they would similarly be in those sort of ranks, right? Like in Screwtape Letters, Screwtape is a fairly high-ranking tempter and his nephew is just an apprentice. And then there's like the secretary toadpipe. Um, but then as far as like the neutral beings, well, Lewis and Tolkien never definitively commit themselves to an absolute belief in the existence of these beings, but neither do they definitively reject them. Mm. And throughout the history of humanity, across every culture, there are traditions of these, these beings, whether it's the little people, the Tuatha Dé Danann in um, Irish mythology, the Longevai in medieval writings, um, the elves 
and so forth. Every culture has a tradition of these people, for lack of a better word, who are um, not quite human, not quite angels, who live in a world that sometimes impinges upon our own and who have entirely other affairs and interests than ours, but that our lives sometimes bump into each other, whether that's in Brigadoon, <laughs> whether it's in uh, The Voyages of the Blessed St. Brendan, or whether it's in uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and the fairy pictures that those little girls took, or whether it's in Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, so whether these may match up to something like the Nephilim that you mentioned, uh, Madeline Langle plays with that possibility in her book, Many Waters. Um, now you mentioned two others. You mentioned the Watcher. Great, and what... cloud, of, great cloud of Witnesses was one I ah, I've always understood the Great Cloud of Witnesses to be Christians who have passed on. Right. Before. Yes, I, I do. I have heard of that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I, I'm not uh, set on what that means, but uh, I think generally that's what I've understood it to be. Okay. And then the Watcher, or the, specifically the Watcher on the Threshold? Um, I'm not, that's I a can't being... remember, that just popped in my head, so I don't know if that okay. has any reference to anything. But... That has, um, that's, an, that's a belief that, or that's a being that was introduced in the novels of um, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, Bulwer Zanoni, who wrote Rosicrucian, novels but it gets interpreted differently in various occult mm. orders but it's a being who's in usually guarding that liminal space between this world and the astral plane and it may be benevolent neutral or malevolent depending on the source but in Leighton's novel Zanoni it's the typical story like the Sorcerer's Apprentice kind of story a young man is taken on as a neophyte or an a low-level initiate by a high-level initiate and is basically told, never open this door um, because there's a watcher on the threshold. But of course, as they always do, they always have to open the door. They always have to look. And he sees this massive, terrifying, slug-like creature that is sort of infinitely feminine. And it haunts him for the rest of his life because he opened the door he shouldn't have opened. Yeah, infinitely but feminine is pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, Just that's joking. what Freud thought. <laughs> <clears throat> yep. Well, ill-behaved women are terrifying. So watch out. <laughs> but in other traditions, the watcher on the thre threshold is more of a guardian who sort of takes the hand of the soul, mixed mixed metaphor there, material, immaterial, guides the soul across the threshold into the other world and can be almost like a Virgilian guide through the levels of the astral plane. So there are different interpretations of that creature. Hmm, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, while we're talking, yeah. I remembered, um, of course, in uh, the first two of Lewis's uh, sci-fi trilogy, he talks about, I guess, aliens. Well, I, it's more, I would say it's more just different species on different planets. I think that's more accurate because uh, he doesn't yeah. talk about like on uh, in, in ships and stuff like that. Um, but in the third book, in The Hideous Strength, he talks about Merlin and I think he, he, he does say something about um, our uh, myths and like uh, Cyclops and all these different things and how those uh, have some, um, they are referencing some truth of, of maybe beings in the past. And of course, this is within a fictional novel, so it's not making a definite, definitive statement that that's what he believes. But uh, that, uh, that's always stuck with me. It was interesting. Yes, me too. That's fascinating. 
Yeah, it's in it's in the book Paralandra, where our hero Ransom is traveling through this vast system of underground caves, mm. and he sees some gigantic and magnificent being drawn along on a chariot by unknown creatures. And he sees this sort of down a cliff and a great distance away, lit by volcanic fires underground. And he thinks then, and like you say at other times, is everything that we experience here on Earth as myth actually fact on another world, Mm -hmm. another planet or another galaxy? Um, Because he and Tolkien believed firmly in the idea of true myth, that every human myth had seeds or echoes or uh, pre-reflections of Christian truth. Right. Yeah, uh, that's always been fascinating to me. Um, Well, not always. (laughs) The last few years. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really appreciate people who are really into the the myths and the s- symbology and they they aren't too uh set in um like oh like aliens like maybe they're a archetype or, or something like that or these experience on psychedelics like if you meet the machine elves or something like that um mm-hmm. but i also get a little annoyed i'm like they're being open that you know, not be taking things too literally, but also what if these things are um, speaking to something in reality that's not just within our psyche? And I always go back to that hermetic principle, like with it, so within, so without, above and below. And so it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to know. So I try to um, hold that, um, you know, what if, what if we are archetypes to another type of being? So, um, yeah, it, it's just you can really get lost oh, in, in your mind beautiful. and all that. <laughs> that's beautiful. Lewis tries to do that a tiny bit towards the end of Paralandra when, when we meet a member of the species called the Piffeltrigi. And then when we meet is a sculptor and he draws a portrait of Ransom. And it, to ransom, it just looks utterly horrific and nonsensical. It's like this squat figure with tentacles sprouting out where its head should be. Um, and he asks Piffeltriggy, do you think I look like that? And the Piffeltriggy says, of course not. But if I drew what you really look like, no one would believe it. Like, I have to make you look some way that our people <laughs> right. will understand. Mm-hmm. So he essentially makes hum- humankind into like an archetypal figure that his descendants will look at and say that, did this creature really descend from the stars? Yeah, so he does kind of flip it. Hmm. There's two other types of creatures we should probably talk about when we're touching on the question of aliens and the inklings. Um, And they may actually be the same creature. Hmm. And that's the planetary intelligences and the retired stars. (laughs) So in the the space trilogy, or as I prefer to call it, the ransom cycle, um, each of the planets is ruled by this spiritual being called an Oyarsa um, or um, sort of like the guardian, the guardian intelligence of the planet. And then it turns out that earth also has one, but he's the one who rebelled. And so in this great mosaic of the solar system, his picture has been chiseled out. And that's why our planet is dark because our Oyarsa refuses to communicate with the other ones. He basically has a radio silence wrapped around the planet. And that's obviously Lucifer. Um, So yeah, that's the question. And well, did Lewis believe these beings really existed? And they roughly match up to the Greco-Roman 
pantheon of planetary intelligences slash deities, right? After whom our planets are named, Mercury, Venus, Mars, etc. Um, similarly, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we meet two characters who apparently are stars who have finished their duties in the heavens. One of them, Ramandu, has retired um, with honors, <laughs> and the other has been kicked out, is being punished. We never know what for. And he's been punished by being put in the form of a man and set on an island to rule a foolish people. Um, and when he says this to the kids, Eustace says, but I thought that a star was a flaming ball of molten gas. Uh, or he says, in our world, a star is a flaming ball of molten gas. And Koryakin says to him, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Mm. Um, suggesting that describing the material makeup of a being is not a complete definition of that being by any means and certainly doesn't capture its spiritual essence its personality etc yeah yeah that gets the whole uh spiritual versus scientific debate and um <laughs> yeah i love that that's that's amazing does it bring up that debate or does it transcend it in a way right well yeah yeah i would say science is just um not taking in the whole picture uh, but their mm. argument is that the physical is the whole picture. And, and I mean, not all scientists, but um, right. kind of our modern Western materialistic mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Cause kind of what I love about that is that Lewis is saying, I have no quarrel with science. Science can go ahead and say, you are a ball of molten flaming gas or you are a carbon based mm -hmm. life form. Um, but it hasn't said anything about who the real you is. Right. Um, that is the immaterial part. I don't like the word part there. That is the immaterial reality uh, coexisting um, in some kind of a spiritual union with that material part. Mm -hmm. So yeah. however, whatever science may change, right? However it may change as it discovers new definitions, the, the, the personhood there can still transcend that, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um <laughs> And we'll uh, we'll get more into that later. <laughs> I have some things on that. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, <laughs> we're still on the first question. Let's move on. <laughs> I know. I, I didn't expect this question to be so in depth, but it's been it's been tasty. It's been great. I love it. Good. So uh, the next thing is is I think you were describing um, people in the occult, and I want to read what you said again. Um, and you said that they train the imagination to a high degree of control in order to practice visualization exercises to attain a higher state of consciousness to create new realities on the astral plane. And they did this yeah. by their focused meditation. They can transform themselves in material reality and they use their arts, plays, and writing for that purpose. Yep. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering... Well, first off, by what is the purpose of creating new realities on the astral plane? How does that translate into transforming material reality? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> One answer is probably just like the Mountaineers answer, like, well, if you can, like, if it's there, just because we like to test our limits. I mean, if you could create new spiritual beings on the astral plane, wouldn't you? 
Right. Like, why do we make poems? Why do we bake pies? Why do we make snowmen, right? Mm, <laughs> so right. part of it is just the, the human urge to create and the human uh, lust for power. But there were quasi-practical, I suppose, applications, like because those beings can then intervene in material reality in positive ways, like physical healing, mental and emotional healing and improvement, um, enlightenment, possibly uh, communication with estranged or difficult people, possibly the attainment of things that one might want in this material or spiritual realm. But ultimately, those beings are, are meant to help guide the individual's spiritual journey upward on the, uh, the paths up the sephirotic tree towards Ein Sof, the ultimate primal light. Mm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. That's interesting. I think some people say, well, there's already plenty of spiritual beings and there's God himself, so why why would we need to create new ones to intervene on our behalf? <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, why do we keep having babies? <laughs> um, <laughs> the planet is overpopulated, right? Um, again, it's, a, it's that urge to create, to pass oneself mm. along, to have a legacy. And, I mean, does this conversation overlap with the first one? I mean, do angels, do spiritual beings have babies do they reproduce uh is it getting too crowded on the astral plane (laughs) (laughs) let's bring in milton here to talk about angel sex i think (laughs) that's funny (laughs) here's an awesome passage when adam asks Raphael, so how how, do do you do you guys do this and Raphael very tactfully tells him how they do it yes (laughs) (laughs) oh i didn't know that yep yep it's by the 100 percent complete intermingling of their of their uh, immaterial selves. So it's a much more complete type of intercourse oh. than human because they don't have physical bodies. So they can hundred percent merge. Mm. Like as if you took mm. two glasses of water and poured them into each other, but they still took up the exact same amount of space mm. as the one essentially. Wow. It's kind of beautiful. It's kind of, beautiful. It kind of that brings up a uh, Tantra. Cause I know that that's all about the, yes. the sexual, but also bringing that spiritual element and the, the souls and that connection. So yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It absolutely does. Yep. So I know that you said that, you know, you've studied this a lot in the different um, visualization or imaginative um, rituals that they would use, but you don't practice them yourself. But in this quote, you said that they use their art and their plays and their writing for this po- purpose. And, and we kind of talked about this, but how, I guess what I'm saying is, we use our imaginations and our thoughts to, to create, to speak, to for everything. And so is everything, in a sense, a uh, mm-hmm. a ritual, a, a, a <laughs> magical a thing that, that we're putting out there that's going to affect each other? Like, we can't get, a, get away from it. <laughs> yes. Yep. It is. <laughs> it is. Uh, Aleister Crowley, uh, who has his famous definition of magic... Um, the the art and science of change induced according to the will in the paragraph in which he says that definition. And I may have said this in our first. Yes, you, you did. But it, go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. Okay. Yeah. At the end of that paragraph, he says, so I've been doing it to you in this paragraph. Like this paragraph is an act of magic because I have affected your consciousness according to my willpower, because my will and my imagination determined what words to put down in what order 
And you now think something different than you did at the beginning of the paragraph. So I've done magic to you. <laughs> and that wasn't even one of his quote unquote magical books. It wasn't even like his, his play, The Rites of Eleusis, when helped along by certain libations that they imbibed, his uh, playgoing attendees were supposed to uh, invoke certain spirits. So it wasn't even that. It's just like an ordinary work of nonfiction as far as Crowley could write anything ordinary. So yes, he would say that every act that a human being does uh, according to their will, and I would say assisted by imagination, that effects a change in the world is an act of magic. So that's almost everything. Right. Now there's a slight difference, very slight between that and what um, members of the Golden Dawn were told when they reached the highest level of initiation or the higher the inner order. They were told to promulgate systems of symbolism whereby they could teach basically safe amounts of truth to the uninitiated under the guise of symbolism. So Yeats did this in his poetry and plays. Um, Algernon Blackwood and Arthur Mackin and Evelyn Underhill did this in their fiction. Charles Williams did this in his fiction and poetry and plays. They created systems of symbolism, sometimes very systematic indeed, accompanied by diagrams and so forth, to teach just a safe amount of what they thought was truth to the uninitiated who liked to go to the theater or read, read novels or poetry or whatever. So that's not a whole lot different then from what say C.S. Lewis was trying to do in the Narnia Chronicles, where he's trying to teach a certain amount of Christian truth to readers under the guise of fiction in a palatable way. The phrase he used was to sneak past watchful dragons, watchful dragons who are like, on on watch to look for anything didactic and like, I don't want that preachy stuff. So instead Lewis is trying to use myth and imagery, right. And story and metaphor and even tiny touches of allegory here and there um, to, to have the truth be palatable. So on the one hand, you're absolutely right with what you're implying. (laughs) There's no difference at all. On the other hand, I think it comes back to the active passive distinction that you mentioned at the beginning or kind of like who is actually operant because neither Lewis nor Tolkien nor I think that we are creating a new being on the astral plane when we create a work of art. Um, We're more Neoplatonist that we think the truths already exist and we hope and pray that God is using us as an instrument that more like we are the pen or the paintbrush that God is wielding to communicate his truth little by little to people. Whereas an Aleister Crowley is absolutely like, I am the God, I am the deity. Mm-hmm. I am summoning these spiritual entities. I'm creating them. I'm summoning them. I am then commanding them to go out and do my will to communicate my truth to the world. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely <laughs> like y'all's view. Um, I, I would, <laughs> I guess I would say like, I think God uses us to create, um, create in new ways and co-create um, with Him. Um, and, and create. Yeah. It's not like we're 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 really creating because we're just using what He's already created. But uh, it's in, it's in new forms and new ways and in in unique ways, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and I mean that gets into a whole other conversations you know platonic and barfieldian about 
new creations versus revealing them, but the, the basic principle is is there. I see what you mean. Yes. <laughs> so, do you think that occult members, uh, and, and I would say it seems like that, uh, you, as we talked about last time, how there was like a, a light magic and a dark magic. That the dark magic would be the ones that were trying to force an astral being being to manifest physically and and do their will and do you believe that they actually did that and what is that how does that happen or how what's that look like yeah i don't know kendall i don't (laughs) know i've been studying this subject for eight nine years now and i've been a christian for most of my conscious life (laughs) and i do not no, I mean, the, the witness and the tradition of the church, broadly speaking, is for the reality of angels and demons and for the significant possibility of their intervention in human affairs. <clears throat> so it seems to me then that if someone wants to call upon a demon, it may very well come. That seems to me perfectly consistent with Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm kind of ashamed to say that in any given situation that I hear about, I always search for the materialist or at least um, psychological explanation. Um, And I'm very skeptical of accounts of angelic or demonic intervention. Um, So I suppose I'll just say, I don't know. And I'm afraid that there's a bit of hypocrisy between my, my theology and my, academic practice right now (laughs) yeah i mean well i appreciate you saying that that's honest and i mean i think we can all if we search inside of ourselves find these uh paradoxes these contradictions um Mm -hmm. and i i at the same time i also understand where you're coming from because i think um from what i've heard you know and they weren't my circles growing up but uh, like pentecostal circles can in a way kind of call everything a demon or something like that and uh in a way that Mm -hmm is not uh, necessarily helpful that it's more harmful or people feel like that it's their fault, uh, something like that. And, right. and so, and also not look for medical attention they need. Exactly. Or, yeah. Right. Right. But I've also seen the opposite where I think there was something demonic or something that, that was not addressed and caused mm. more harm that way. So I've seen it both mm-hmm. ways, but mm-hmm. I can understand people on either side um, because of these um, harmful experiences uh, be pushed to one side or the other. And it's a complex thing. Yeah. 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 That's good. And I'll say further. um, I mean, I haven't, I haven't traveled and lived in other cultures extensively enough to observe a lot of the things that happen in cultures that are much more steeped in, um, religions and traditions that take the local reality, the supernatural very seriously. But let's just say this, like I don't see any contradiction between the two methods of operation in my mind. So if someone were to convince me a hundred percent beyond a shadow of a doubt that let's say um, a hallucination that someone experiences during a, a psychiatric incident, if they were to convince me that it was a demon acting I would still believe that it also was a hundred percent something happening with brain chemistry, brain, ele- you know, electricity, et cetera, et cetera. And that maybe medication could help. 
because God works in the spiritual and the material in this beautiful, holistic way. And similarly, when I experience some kind of a supernatural blessing, if someone were to explain it away materially, to me, that's not a problem. Like, yeah, that's how God did it. What's the difference? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. And I've talked about this before that I, I, I totally am agreeing with you that I don't see that as necessarily contradictory. Um, mm. To me, it's more about the question of what is healthy and what do we need to do to get uh, someone a healthy experience. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, so so yeah. don't just dismiss them, but also just like, how can we, you know, like, are you hearing voices? Are these voices helpful to you or are they not helpful? <laughs> mm, yeah, and to your family, your friends, your community, your... Exactly, yeah, yes. Your physical health, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I was teaching a Sunday school class once on mental health. And I asked the question that was not purely rhetorical. And I said, but I want to know when I think something wicked or extremely harmful, like I want to hurt myself or something like that, is that a sin or is it the illness? And my co-teacher said the most helpful thing possible. He was a a medically trained person. He was a physician's assistant and an elder at the church or deacon. And he said, not to be flippant, but does it matter? Because Mm -hmm. Jesus died for both. Jesus heals both the sin and the illness. They're both detrimental. You know, whether it's a demon telling me you should kill yourself or whether it's my brain chemistry telling me they're both, that's bad. (laughs) And it's a lie. And it's against God's design for my flourishing. Um, So God takes care of both. You know, he's here to heal both of those. I have, I have a short story, which I, explore this to, to some depth um, in which the character has to wrestle with this and on lots of layers. So yeah, yeah, go for it. I think about a bit. Um, this is a story called genetic revelation. That's in my collection. Shall these bones breathe, which is currently searching for a publisher. And the whole collection is exploring epiphanies that happen in unexpected circumstances and the importance of embodiment. And this story, I think it's, it might be the only story in the collection that doesn't have something supernatural, fantastical, or science fiction-y other than like spiritual visions and hallucinations. So it's the most realist of the stories, but it's this young woman who's struggling with exactly that. You know, when her brain does bad things, is she responsible for them or not? When she feels like she has faith, is that real or is it just biology? Yeah. So anyway, that brought out more than, more than yeah. I expected. It to. No, that's great. Um, <laughs> I guess how I think about it, the I just I don't love the way um, a lot of modern Christians think about sin these days, and I just I think of more of like health or not, and so uh, right. I don't think uh, I'm not like oh man I'm thinking bad thoughts. Uh, I'm just like okay the are these thoughts helpful for me or not? And and mm-hmm. two I think that sometimes in this um, oh this, these thoughts are sinful, don't think about. It. I think that. Sometimes people can um, just bury bury them and not actually yep. where where in a psychological way where are these coming from and what messages are they telling me that I need to address to heal from my past and so just say hey that's the devil let me pray it away and I don't you know and, and of course we want to pray and and we want to have thoughts that are healthy for us but. Um, to do that, we need to go through the work and not just um, bypass it, I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's really well said. Yeah. 
I like that a lot. Okay, so <laughs> you were talking, and this may not be the most fair thing to do because you said this in a context in a in a paragraph of what you were saying and replying to me, um, but I thought it was important, and you know, I'll let you explain okay. yourself or whatever. But um, at one point, you were saying um, it's enough for most of us to just submit to the exoteric commands and practices. And uh, I think about, I think you were talking about like getting into magic and the cult and 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 and, and these the creative or the experimental kind of things. Yeah. And um so I think I I, I also took this quote I, I wrote it down I guess later and then I thought about it in a different yeah. context because you were also talking about like the creeds and following those. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. connecting those two. Um, th- okay. First of all, I just want to say, is this an accurate uh, retelling of, of what you were saying? I don't remember all of the context, but just thinking of what do I usually think and say? <laughs> seems like it. <laughs> it seems like I probably would say if you were to lay out, you know, the exoteric quote unquote truths of Christianity, the creeds, the Bible and so forth, and then say, well, what if there's this whole esoteric hidden thing? I'd probably be like, eh, you don't need it. God has, God has given all the revelation that he deemed necessary for mm. health and salvation. Mm-hmm. But you, you still, you still uh, looked into it at least, but you're being a good scholar there <laughs> in that respect. Yeah. We have to study everything, right? We have to study even things that are might be scary to us or that we might think are dangerous. We still have to have the knowledge about it and put the facts out there for others to continue investigating. Right, right. Uh, and I, I really respect that, and that that's great. Um, I think um, that that statement a little bit – I'll, I'll be honest. It was a little, a little bit triggering. Ooh, tell me why, if you if you can, if you yeah, want to. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, and I've talked about this before in my my awakening experience. After that experience, the Christianity that I grew up with uh, just didn't. I just didn't connect with it. It was a, an emotional deconstruction, like automatic. And I, I didn't have at the time I didn't have any intellectual thoughts of why or understood what was going on. I was just I just had a really hard time praying. I had a really hard time going to church, reading the Bible, and just feeling mm-hmm. any connection. And so I just kind of went away from it for a while. And yeah. um, it was whenever a couple years ago when I read a near death experience book and it connected with my experience that I started my spiritual and intellectual journey into what, what was that? And that also included kind of a reconstruction of my faith and my beliefs. And that itself is what helped me to actually have a faith and a belief again. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I totally understand um how most people um you know they're just trying to live their lives well and and be good christians and whatever and just to follow the creeds and the bible um and everything like that well first of all i want to say it's it's funny because i grew up at church of christ and i didn't even know what the creeds were and 
it was <laughs> took me until college till I was like, oh, there's this thing called creeds, and some some denominations <laughs> are very serious about these and and follow these, and so. Um, yeah. I didn't grow up with the creeds exactly, but I get the the principle because I think that we had that had a creed and it was Jesus on the cross and it was certain beliefs about what that means. So we did have a creed to an extent. Um, yeah, maybe just not but, a codified one. Exactly. Um, yeah. So um, I guess I would say that without um, without an inner connection. Um, and practice to God um, and meaning. I had to find that interconnection to God and, and meaning uh, a recontextualization of of like baptism or Jesus on the cross or all these different beliefs. Um, I would have just gone. Mm-hmm. A, I would just stayed away. And so right. it really to say my faith. I needed to um, think about these things in a new way and all this stuff. And I think that. Um, you know, whether that's people that have had mystical experiences or on the process of deconstructing, um, they they have to do this in order to have a faith again or this is going to go away. And I think a lot of times people that have an experience deconstruction, they're like, oh, you're just choosing to go away from the faith. But people that are going through it say that I didn't choose to have this. It happened to me. <laughs> I, I didn't mean for it to happen. And so that's kind of how it was with me as well. And so um, I think it's important. And and so I, I'm not saying that you're against all these things. I'm just putting in my own experience and thoughts with it. Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I, I understand that. And I sympathize with that, that deconstruction and that journey so much. Yeah. Um, the exoteric and the esoteric is a little bit more specific, maybe. Sure. Um, right. I could maybe define right. it a bit more clearly. By the esoteric, if it's within some kind of larger quasi-Christian tradition, like the specific group that I study, the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, what they put forth is that there was a secret liturgy of the Eucharist um, that Jesus performed at the Last Supper and was passed down by word of mouth, and it's not written. And the only way you can access it is by joining their group mm. <laughs> and saying mm-hmm. their vows and going through their initiation. And mm. their it's a little bit elitist-sounding. <laughs> Very, very, right. um, and their whole, their whole like sociocultural motivations for that. Um, so I think that's silly. <laughs> um, I think it's a little bit self-serving on the part of the guy who that I'm talking about, Arthur Edward Waite, that he's like, you know, no one else in the world has access to this full truth except me. I'm the only person who discovered right. it, and right. it was passed down by word of mouth through Joseph of Arimathea to this person, this person, this person, finally to me, and I've written it down. Um, so I do not think that to be a Christian, one has to be an initiate in the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross mm-hmm. and practice A.E. Waite's esoteric liturgies. So that's part of what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. The other part of what I'm saying is if anyone wants to access Christian truth, I think they can without occult means. I think they can mm-hmm. simply read a Bible if they have access to it in their heart language, <laughs> um, which is why I love translation work. They can pick up a Bible. They can read it. They can um, read the creeds. If that's part of the tradition that they're studying or interested in, they can walk into a church and hear a sermon. So a lot of what I'm saying is I'm grateful that I don't think a secret truth is necessary, mm. that I'm grateful that the truth that God wants us to know is available. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, that definitely. 
public. It's exoteric. It's publicly accessible. Mm, right. I think I would, um, I'll say this, that, um, and, and I mentioned this last time that I think Jesus said, you know, I, I talk to them in parables, but I talk to you plainly. Um, and yeah. there is like uh, my, my life is hidden in Christ as well. Although what Paul meant by that is up for debate, but uh, <laughs> I think there is, um, I think about it like psychological stages of, of development or spiral dynamics. And there's these, um, the ways our, our brain develops and the ways we think about things. Uh, we think about things very literally or symbolically or understand the nuances or that, Hey, there's there, like, there is absolute truth, but also we all have come at it, come at it from our own relative perspectives. Um, Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is that I think there's levels of understanding and levels to truth. Oh, and yeah. so um, it's not that um, you have to be initiated in a society or that something is hidden, but it is hidden in a psychological way that you have to uh, yep. develop and grow into understanding these truths to a new level. Um, and I think that that's probably what Jesus was talking about. And that's kind of, how I understand it. That, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. If I were to put terms on it, like Bible school terms, we might use the phrases general revelation and special revelation, right? Like there's so much out there that everybody can understand. And then there's stuff that one cannot understand without the work of the Holy Spirit enabling us to understand. Yeah. 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 Again, it's just so funny because I, I, again, that's a, two phrases that I can grow up with is part of my faith, general and special revelation. And so sure. to me, I, I think the, and, and oh, that gets into the, another thing that I, <laughs> I, I feel like that the, um, my, my, my metaphysics is that um, the Holy spirit is in everybody. That's our spirit that animates us. It's more of um, an awakening to that being, and living through that perspective and that revealing to us the truth. And so it's not a um, general versus special, but a spectrum of understanding revelation more and more um, as you grow. Okay. Oh, thank you for explaining that. That makes sense. Yeah, I can see that now. Um, That seems quite consistent with a lot of the writers that I study. That seems uh, to be really uh, in in harmony with some a lot of Charles Williams' writings and a lot of those other people that I that I mentioned Arthur Mackin, Algernon Blackwood, Evelyn Underhill. That seems to be really consistent with their understanding, and that's one reason they wrote their their books that they did is to try to uh, assist with that awakening that you're describing. Yeah. So would I have have understood you correctly? that the kind of triggering part of it maybe was the, like the exclusivity of um, like saying was this like, this is the only path kind of thing. Well, I guess, I guess, I guess maybe it was probably uh, some projection as far as um, what you said and uh, how some other people have told or have said basically, well, basically is- like, why, why are you doing, why are you doing this journey? Why are you going into this so much? Why do you need to, dive in and um, oh, kind yeah. of basically that like 
it's important to save my faith <laughs> to for me to have a spiritual right. life for me to do this <laughs> yeah no i don't judge anyone else's spiritual journey right. at the same time i do you know i think there are a lot of claims of christianity that are pretty offensive in their exclusivity right there's right yeah yeah so yeah i definitely think that you know that um we're all uh or i'll say this that that i think that there there is an absolute truth and so there is an exclusive exclusivity to that um but to me um actually i think my my history teacher baylor I think he posited in, in, the, in the class global Christianity basically that the that there wasn't a, um, a orthodox Christianity that that's it, it's kind of different in different places and we think about things differently and I've been thinking about like you know um, a lot of Christians will say well we can agree about Jesus on the cross and what that meant or like the church I grew up with would say that. But I would say it's not, it's more the mystery of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection mm. that brings us mm-hmm. together, not understanding that and defining that clearly. And, and, and so, uh, yeah, that the, 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 the Orthodox Christianity is kind of a myth in a, in a sense. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. So it's not so much the dogmatic or didactic statement as the mystery of that central event. Right, right. That's and, beautiful. you know, there's, there's a lot I could go into about, um, you know, I think like Roar and a lot of mystics and maybe like St. Francis talks about um, the universal Christ or Christ consciousness within the world, or you would say general revelation and how that I don't think people necessarily have to know about Jesus on the cross to be able to learn how to live like Jesus. And that kind of, that message is is reverberating throughout the universe in different ways and different stories um, and different experiences that, that God can reveal to people. And that's very like non-Christian thing for me to say, but. (laughs) <laughs> I wonder, though, it sounded to me quite harmonious with C.S. Lewis's discussions of the Tao and the abolition of man. And he has an appendix mm. to the abolition of man in which he quotes great sayings from across a huge variety of religious and philosophical traditions to show that there is sort of a universal ethic that transcends culture. And I think he would attribute it to general revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's sort of like yeah. the ethical counterpart of the true myth or the ethical outgrowth of, I'm not sure exactly the prepositions to use, um, mm. but there's, there's some something analogous or related between true myth and the universal ethic. Right. So I think that, um, I think that like, I would say that Jesus uh, was necessary is important. I think we were, it's not, to me, it's not that we didn't, um, like he well i try to have space i'm not going to say for sure that he didn't change things ontologically but i for sure can say he changed uh humanity psychology psyche and understanding um Mm. he 
I think he changed our relationship and understanding of God. He changed our understanding of God, his unconditional love, and that um, I believe we we didn't ever need to like sacrifice animals and do all these things for him because he's unconditional mm-hmm. love. But uh, Jesus said you can have a personal relationship with the temples within you, and you don't need um, to sacrifice something external to him um, to have that. You don't need to atone. Um, and so I can say that and that I think that that changed humanity and the world. And so that's, um, you know, and we still can forget that and we still can act in ways that we don't understand there, don't know that. But I think that people can know that and, and, and know that again, without even knowing about Jesus on the cross um, and have that personal relationship with God. Hmm. Okay. I hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Hmm. Um, I guess since we're already there, yeah. What, what do, do you want to kind of go into your understanding of of uh, Jesus on the cross and what that meant? Oh boy! <laughs> what do you think of kind of this uh, universal Christ and, and and that revelation? Yeah. Um, thanks for asking. That's that's a little different from my understanding. I lean pretty sure. heavily onto the transcendence side of things. I have a lovely and cordial ongoing debate with a brilliant scholar and minister um, who thinks that I lean too heavily into the creatorly creaturely distinction. I don't want to see that distinction erased. Um, to me, it's very important that God's in his heaven <laughs> all's a mess in the world. And there's something, there's, there's a divide between God, the Trinity, the father, son, and Holy spirit and me being made in his image, absolutely in his image. And of course there's a lot of discussion of where exactly does that image shine forth most? Is it in rationality? Is it in language? Is it in loving each other? Is it in community? Is it in being a sub creator in arts? Is it physically, you know, what is it? Um, Probably all of the above. Um, But I, in in my theology and especially in my Christology, I find it important to maintain a sharp distinction. So I wouldn't use terms like the Christ consciousness or the Christ spirit within or something like that. Um, I have a fairly low anthropology myself. I'm not very keen on, I don't have a whole lot of hope for the human race without divine intervention. Um, And where I do find hope is in seeing that Christ has already done all of the work of saving, redeeming, healing, sanctifying, helping. Um, And none of that work is of me. And none of that work is of human origin or human effort. So one of the most beautiful things about Christianity for me is its restfulness. Mm. In a way, it's just like falling back into the most comfortable feather bed or falling back into the most comfortable um, like air flotation device and floating down the river by being supported by, by him Um, or an unforgettable sermon that I heard was be a kitten, not a baby sloth. And here's (laughs) the baby sloth 
clings onto its mother's fur. It takes its little tiny claw paws and twists them into mommy's fur and hangs on for dear life as she crawls through the trees. Um, the kitten, however, Mama Cat grabs it by the scruff of the neck and the little kitten just goes limp and curls up its little tiny paws and has nothing to do with where we're going and what we're doing next. And Mama Cat just carries it 100%. Um, so the, my sort of high Christology and low anthropology, those, those theoretical, you know, th- that ontology there leads to a praxis um, of gratitude and of work for social justice and work for holiness coming from a place of rest and of knowing that that work is already done. I hope I hope I said that in a semi-coherent fashion. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think I think that goes back to the theme I mentioned at the very beginning. That I, so, I think there is some sort of paradox between surrender um, that uh, the kingdom of heaven is here and it, it's already here, and yeah. uh, and that there's things outside of our control that we just have to surrender to, and if we're um, in resistance to that, it's just creating more tension <laughs> inside of us. Yeah. Um, and I think there is, and I, I'm still trying to find the right word, uh, but I'll just say <laughs> striving. Um, there is an active, um, hey, sometimes I feel like, um, you know, I'm waiting for God to do something or change something. And he's like, get off your butt and go do it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, <laughs> I would say that if you get off your butt and go do it, it's because he was operative in your getting off your butt and going and doing it. Right. And, and <laughs> I, I agree with that. And spiritual disciplines with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength. Right. So from our point of view, it looks like we're striving, but I think that it's, it's God doing it through us. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so much of these like conversations I have with people, I'm like, I feel like it's just so much semantics and it's like, how, how different is it? What, what, we're, what we really meant is just like the way we say it and um and, and also maybe too like the way we are like um i i'm i lean more towards the introspection and the individual and some people are very extroverted and, and about the the collective and so maybe our emphasis is to try to help balance ourselves um, but maybe we're all trying to find that true middle middle ground and so uh mm-hmm. our language is different in that way but it's more reflective of us than so yeah yep yep <laughs> of course you're talking to a poet and somebody all my scholarly work focuses on the fact that words do things <laughs> and you speak right. a word and it creates a reality maybe even a spiritual reality <laughs> so I, sometimes it's just mm-hmm. semantics because we're struggling to find the words or because the thing might be ineffable might be beyond words Right. Sometimes the words that we use matter even to the great extent of like Europe tearing itself apart in religious wars over one prepositional phrase over Mm -hmm. the filial play part of the, of the creed, right? Does the son proceed from the father and the son? Um, You know, that just, just a tiny little couple of syllables can Mm -hmm. create generations of warfare. Yeah. Right. So, so I, I do believe that like words are important and they are very helpful and very powerful. Obviously, I mean, I'm a writer and podcaster <laughs> and uh, 
but at the same time as a as a mystic i i i, I do think the truth is beyond words it's beyond logical understanding there is again that mystery um yeah and 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 if if we could understand it if we could put it into words then it we're probably missing something it's probably not the whole right. truth and right. so yeah. i try not to get too dogmatic or take uh words or um theologies uh too uh, too important i think they can become idols um i really right. like Mr. Eckhart's, I pray God rid me of God. I pray he rid me of the idol I've made him of, of what I think he is. Mm, it's good. Words matter. Choosing the right ones is essential, but they are not God. They are not the spiritual reality to which they try to point us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's why like, I'm like, I, I appreciate creeds and what they're trying to do, but also, um, I, I think it's okay to disagree or, or you know, mm-hmm. it, I guess I don't hold them too high. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They have to be used for these sorts of fruitful and generative conversations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And again, it, the more I go on my spiritual journey and, and, and look into uh, different groups, different religions, different uh, the more I feel like I, I find parallels and um, meaning and beliefs in w- what we're saying. And so mm. uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I think I'm just I want people to be, um, yeah, not too dogmatic and too caught up in the the logical and, and, and being too firm. And so that we can come together um and find these connections and this oneness between all people. And I, you know, of course that's a bit idealistic and stuff like that. And again, meaning is important and definitions and all that stuff, but um, that's kind of my slant. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's beautiful. We need some idealism. (laughs) Positivity. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry that I'm running a little short on my time. Was there one, was there something else you wanted to make sure we got in before I have to skedaddle? Mm. Yeah, there's some uh, juicy stuff in there, but I think we I think we really covered a lot of a lot of great things, and I really enjoyed the conversation. I think that um, we probably got to a, a deeper level even than, than last time, and so I really enjoyed that, and I really appreciate that. Thank you, and thanks for for pushing and asking me to to say what I really think too, because you know, well, glad to share if you want to hear it, and glad to uh, bounce our ideas and our perspectives off each other. Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of the purpose of this podcast is uh, people being free to express their points of view and their um, beliefs. And yeah. hopefully we can do our best to have a good, productive conversation and, and find find some middle ground as well. And uh, I think we, we did plenty of that. And so I think so. Yeah, well, great. let me know if you need a part three and holy luck on all <laughs> of your spiritual journeying and adventures. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Same to you. Yeah, all right.